AVs shift away from early stage and um, you just did not have any capital at all in this market, say starting in the 08, 09 timeframe to really harness all this talent. In the meantime, you, you see continued ascendancy in tech employment of this town, slow and steady growth across lots of companies, gradually moving people here, Charles Schwab, Visa, open giant offices, um, Dell continue to grow in strength. Um, UT as an institution continues to grow immensely in strength. There's a tremendous output of uh, STEM, not just you know IP as well as great graduates coming out of this place. So you have the core DNA that has been you know thriving and growing nicely in this market, but the amount of capital available has been precipitously declining, starting OO, first with the lack of diversity of funds in the first place, and then number two actual capital itself with AV not spending as much time on the early stage market. So by the time 2010 came, came about, it was a very sad market, right? With talent in plenty, but just simply complete lack of early stage capital to harness the talent. That's what we looked around and said, oh my God, this is a top market of the country. Fund formation in this market from own from 2009 till 2012, 2011 was like 30, 40 million dollars a year of fund formation, which is all a little bitty, you know, not even qualifies real fund formation. And here you have, you know, this is 70% of California's tech jobs is here. UT is, um, you know, number two in the country after the University of California system for IP and STEM and patents and so on. So this, we looked around and said, this is a once in a generational opportunity to come and build a firm that looks like the Austin of the 90s, which is complete incredible focus on early stage activity in this market and uh, to, to, to harness what is this amazing DNA available. Hello and welcome to Fireside with VC. My name is Andrew Romans, and it's great to have my longtime friend in Austin, Texas, OG of the venture community, Krishna, Krishna Srinivasan. So before we jump into it, I know this guy well. Krishna beat out thousands and thousands of people to get a slot at the IIT back when there was only a couple of IITs and those things were still, you know, much, much, much harder to get into Stanford, Harvard, or Wharton. He then got a master's at UT Austin, placing himself here before the world invaded this city. And then of course got his MBA at Wharton. Krishna um, went from engineer to partner at AV Austin Ventures, which had a near monopoly um, in the Austin, Texas marketplace and saw IBM turn into startups and startups go back to IBM. So I wanna get a bit of perspective, the old, old uh, community and how it's evolved to where we are right now and where we're going with Austin and Texas in general. Um, Krishna, so I think 10 years at AV Austin Ventures, and I remember it felt like yesterday, Krishna, when we were talking about how you were going to start Live Oak. And it's now been, I think, has it been 12 years already? Yes, about uh, a little over 10 years, 11 years since we're close. Okay, 11 years. You know, I think at 12 years is kind of a magic number, which is actually like 14 is or 15 is becoming the new magic number that, you know, when I have VCs on a panel, I like to have guys like you and not just associates because when you've seen the full 12 years and LPs, you know, are they happy? Are they not happy? 12, you know, did they live long enough? You know, that's like kind of the full cycle. But the truth is 12 is maybe 
you know, it's turning into more of a 14 or 15. Uh, so we can dive into all that. So the point is you've got wisdom because you've seen the movie beginning, middle and end now quite a bit. But um, so we're going to talk about we're going to talk about the Austin community and how it's evolving in venture in Texas. I also want to hear about your Kilimanjaro trip and then uh, maybe where the where we see the market is right now and how you're getting your portfolio companies through 2023 and when are we going to see our exit. So before we dive into all of this, let's hear from my good buddy from the Valley, Mark. Say something about venture debt. Hi, everybody. This is Mark Ditarjani. I'm with Pacific Western Bank, and we are a bank focused on helping startups grow and get to the next stage. We've been working with Andrew and 7BC for years now. Andrew and I go back a decade and a half at this point, and I've always respected the fact that he's a thought leader in the space and somebody that you can learn an awful lot. And he kind of opens up that window a little bit into VC and what's what's happening in the back room. So we're excited to be partnered with Andrew on his podcast here at Pacific Western Bank. We focus on helping startups get to the next level. We offer a startup services program for companies that are the pre-A, which includes some free banking and some high yield interest rates. And then when companies raise an A round, then we start moving into treasury management services and then venture debt. And we believe that we're one of the leaders in the venture debt market because we are flexible and we can do custom packages and we don't just do off the shelf type of term sheets. So enjoy the podcast. It's going to be a lot of fun. You're going to learn some things and we'll see you on the other side. Okay. So Krishna, good to see you, man. Thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. Always a pleasure, Andrew, to chat with you. So, so Krishna, because you've got now 20 plus years of being one of the top VCs in Austin, I mean, AV, when there was AV, there weren't that many other choices, right? I mean, how many VCs were kind of active in the game back then? Well, let me uh, slightly, well, when I joined the business in 2000, uh, beginning of 2000, when I came to Austin Ventures, I would say that we, we, I would count about 15 firms active in this town. 15. Uh, yeah. And, and, and you could trace that to the bullishness of the Austin market, Texas market in general, at the time. So let's rewind the clock, maybe 10 years. So I came to this town in 93 to go to graduate school at UT. Um, still a pretty sleepy town, um, known for its University of Texas, known for MCC, Semitech, IBM, and some tech companies here, National Instruments. Um, those were some of the big giants, and AMD perhaps, um, and those are the places. And uh, the place, and AV, in 1979 was its first vintage fund. So it's already been here for about 13, 14 years by then. Um, and then uh, this market had an amazing surge of great exits uh, in line with the broader internet uh, era at the time. Um, when, well, the first big exit was Tivoli here in the mid nineties, which then yeah. became a big part of IBM software, continued to, continued to play an incredibly important role uh, as, as the original fountain from which a lot of entrepreneurship has come. But then towards the end of the 90s, you had companies like Vignette, Silicon Labs, um, and, and so on, which became these massive uh, public companies out of this town. So that propelled Austin Ventures and some amazing returns in its fund four in particular, which was like a 90, 93 vintage, 95, 93, 95 vintage, 94 vintage fund, which was an amazing fund, which many of these companies. So when I came here, uh, Austin Ventures had raised about 
$800 million since inception in the 20-year period. And then came Fund 7, which is the doubled of the asset center management to be an $825 million fund hmm. and really put AB on the map as one of the top firms in the nation in, on the backs of what Fund 4 had returned and Fund 5 and the promise of Fund 5, et cetera. And that that was a big, was that's a big seven. number, even for Silicon Valley at it that was. time. What year was the 800? This was 2000. 2000. 2000. Uh, it's yeah, a 2000 I mean, vintage. It, like when I was an entrepreneur in the 90s, um, the Silicon Valley, of course, was where most of the money was. But you would fly over New York to get to Boston. And, but then, so all the VCs were basically Boston, the Valley. And then overnight, every investment banker, you know, got rid of his suit and tie and was a VC. But then they disappeared in 2001. So, you know, March of 2000. So you had like a lot of VCs popped up in New York and then they disappeared, you know, at that time. And so I was a junior guy who joined the firm fresh from business school. I finished Wharton in December of 99. And uh, March 10th, uh, NASDAQ peak, I was the last guy hired before the peak. So the next two years was all about uh, how do I keep my job here through this uh, war of attrition of the business. But that was the most educational times, right? In, in there's a lot of patterns between then and now. In fact, you had this incredible rise in the market between 98, 99 to 2000 to this incredible fall in 01 and 02, the public markets collapsing, which was the leading indicator before venture troubles and late stage financing got challenged, et cetera. How do you manage companies through the 01 and 02 timeframes for them to survive through those that nuclear winter with respect to financings and how winners and keep, keep providing, creating, sustaining winners through the timeframe became a big challenge. So lots and lots of uh, amazing lessons from that time frame. So, but, but but as we started the conversation here, given how attractive it was, everybody wanted to be venture capitalist. You had the combination of obviously Austin Ventures, and then you had a bunch of uh, firms in Dallas and Austin. There's a firm called Seven Rosen, which was a very famous firm at Backcombac yep. and Citrix and so on. And then you had companies uh, like you know Centerpoint and a few others that would work with, with Seven Rosen. You know, a lot of other first-time funds which had opened up here, um, Sternhill Partners, Crosswords Ventures, I can f- figure the names there. Um, and then um, you had a lot of national shops with local presence. You had Adams Capital, somebody from NEA here, somebody from Polaris here, and so on. So you had local presence for a lot of, and so you count all of this, you at least have like 15 firms that had some level of a presence in the Austin market. Now you fast forward from the OO, maybe even through to 07, 08 timeframe, AV had raised- which is, which is when the market was taken off. I mean, I think of 2006 was nuclear winter is officially ended. And it, it, yes and no, but you know, a lot of people had deployed capital from that entire batch of funds in 0991 of this market. Okay. And, and, and number two is what had put this market in the map significantly was semiconductors, mixed signal semiconductors, processor companies, because AMD was so strong here and IBM had a big processor group, a lot of enterprise infrastructure and some enterprise software, application software was definitely emerging and growing. No consumer, hardly any consumer in this town at all. Um, so this town was definitely strong for things like semiconductors and hardware, of course, given Dell also being here. So maybe it's a, and then there's a lot of optical stuff in Dallas, given tremendous amount of telecom activity. So you combine all of these things, so many of these firms lost massive amounts of money in these big bets between 0001 and so on. 
lots and lots of them just could not raise capital again. And uh, slowly this market, macro market nuclear venture was done in 05, 06, but locally you slowly started to see people disappear. Either people pull back to their core markets, first funds couldn't raise a second fund anymore, even established entities like Seven Rosen just could not come back to the market and set a point and so on. So you fast forward to the 2008 timeframe, AV raised at 825 million dollar fund, one more 830 and a 500 and an $800 million fund in 2009, $900 million fund in 2008. So overall $3.2 billion under management, but was pretty much left with being the sole king of the hill, king of the mountain here, more because many of these other firms had kind of you know, fallen by the wayside in the timeframe or had retrenched and moved back to their, back to their markets, especially when going got tough in, the, in Bay Area and Boston and so on, yeah. firms that moved that created local offices here, branch offices here, all just pull back into their core, into their core offices, into their central offices is what happened. So, so that's led to this being the, you know, AV being the sole choice was an evolution that happened from 00 to 08. It was dominant in 00. It became massively dominant by the time, let's say, fund nine, fund 10 got raised in the 2008 timeframe. By the way, uh, I know that I just want to say that um, there were venture vintages, so specific individual funds that managed to capture some exits in the dot com run up. And so they might have had like one investment in eToys or some kind of silly dot com thing that was returning the fund 5x or something impressive. And then when the music stopped with the dot com crash, and then it went quiet. So there was funds. You, you almost had to wait for that last pre-burst of the bubble to not be in the next vintage to then wipe out those funds. So they just died in coffins when they no longer had that single or four or five hits of e-toys type stuff. That's right. There was a bit of a cleansing, I think. Very much so. It was a very strange time of the business, right? With the uh firms which you thought would be solid firms could not and then firms started almost disappearing and suddenly get one big hit and suddenly puts them back on the map and so on um all of that happened in in, in the time frame um so uh you know av was definitely on the path to being an amazing survivor because through all of that and managed to raise some great funds uh as i said from fund eight nine and ten in 2008 so that was the landscape here but but you you'd clearly seen a real surge in activity given all these funds in 01 and 02. In fact, even 00 amount of capital was plenty here, and you know. But 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 the the the, the money was going into what today would be considered unfavorable industries. Lots of hardware, um, lots of enterprise infrastructure, a lot of telecom type stuff in that time frame, which of course ended up being not so profitable places to invest. Yep. So that was and then 08. Um, by then, um, you could definitely see the mix of investing here in this market from an Austin Ventures to be, you know, there was obviously some venture. There was uh, uh, a bunch of interesting roll-ups. You know, HomeAway was a roll-up, was not a venture investment, right? It was a started began as, as six companies brought together in one shot and then and, and HomeAway acquired VRBO. And that's how now it's called VRBO. And then, of course, Expedia acquired it. And then retail me not is a great outcome, but that was also a roll up of multiple things. Uh, Bazaar wise is a fantastic uh, company, yeah. which is a true early stage uh, investment here. Great entrepreneur, 
uh, that, that you know who who founded that Bret Hart. Uh, but but overall, the 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 mix of investing in this market became a little bit of venture, a bunch of roll-ups, and AV was doing a ton of these lower mid-market buyouts. Um, you know, food processing to marine dredging to you know all kinds of interesting companies, which provided decent returns. But the mix had changed significantly towards the buyout thing. As a result, when the global financial crisis hit in 08, 09, et cetera, et cetera, not only was early stage investing a challenge, there was simply very little money in this market for anything like that. You know, you require, as you know very well, Andrew, you require local venture capital presence to be the first investor in earliest of days of companies to help with aspects of team building, figuring out product strategy here. What does go to market look like? You know, all of these things get solidified in the early first year or so, and that it requires local capital, check size of the two to $5 million to go figure these things out. With AV's shift away from early stage, and um, you just did not have any capital at all in this market, say starting in the 08, 09 timeframe to really harness all this talent. In the meantime, you, you see continued ascendancy in tech, employment of this town, slow and steady growth across lots of companies, gradually moving people here. Charles Schwab, Visa, open giant offices, um, Dell continue to grow in strength. Um, UT as an institution continues to grow immensely in strength as a tremendous output of uh, STEM, not just you know IP as well as great graduates coming out of this place. So you have the core DNA that has been you know thriving and growing nicely in this market but the amount of capital available has been precipitously declining starting OO, first with the lack of diversity of funds in the first place, and then number two, actual capital itself with AV not spending as much time on the early stage market. So by the time 2010 came, came about, it was a very sad market, right? With talent in plenty, but just simply complete lack of early stage capital to harness the talent. That's what we looked around and said, oh my God, this is a top market of the country. Fund formation in this market from 2009 till 2012, 2011 was like 30, $40 million a year of fund formation, which is all a little bitty, not even qualifies as real fund formation. And here you have, you know, this is 70% of California's tech jobs is here. UT is, um, you know, number two in the country after the University of California system for IP and STEM and patents and so on. So this, we looked around and said, this is a once in a generational opportunity to come and build a firm that looks like the Austin of the 90s, which is complete incredible focus on early stage activity in this market and uh, to, to, to harness what is this amazing DNA available. You know, there, so, so, there were some early signs. There's a lovely article in the, in the in the Economist, which actually was a lovely cover story, which became a, a centerpiece of our fundraising deck in the 2011 timeframe, which talked about California being in this, being, Texas being an ascendancy and California being all tattered and bruised and broken up. That's not quite come to bear, but uh, but but still, it talked about Texas being an ascendancy here uh, going forward. And so that was the genesis of Live Oak. We saw as entrepreneurs ourselves, tremendous opportunity in the local market and a complete lack of supply of uh, high quality institutional capital available to harness that. And two of my partners and I, we had a tremendous run at AV, 
great success, a lot of good returns, uh, billion dollars of enterprise value and exits in the time frame. And we said, guys with real duration working together, who totally understand the local market, who really made money for LPs, and tremendous supply demand mismatch here with AV not focusing on prioritizing this market, we, you know, and, and all the ingredients to build a long-term franchise here. And that was the basis for us to come out and do this ourselves. That, that's a great, it's a great evolution of the market. Um, with going back to the 0001 lessons learned, because we're kind of in, there's a lot of headwinds right now. What are some, what are some things that happened then that are applicable to today? And maybe what are some things that happened then that are, you know, sometimes it's different. Like, for example, I remember when the dot-com crash happened, a lot of GPs, VCs that I knew actually returned LP capital. Like LPs asked for the money to be returned. When 08 happened, those same VCs said, well, I'm not doing that again. Um, and in fact, if there's some provisions that tell you exactly what happens when you stop paying your management fee drawdowns and your your, your capital calls. And basically, I'm going to repossess your house like Bank of America if you stop paying your mortgage. So like that's that's a difference between, you know, the recession or crash of, of 001 to 08. W what did you do to kind of circle the wagons and get your startups through or were companies getting unplugged? And it's very different now, but. Well, there are some relevant lessons. Um, number one, we had companies that had raised money even then at we had, we didn't call them unicorns, but we had, we had actually had billion dollar plus valuation private companies then. Yeah. And I know one that went under in nine months time from that valuation. So what happens is, uh, well, so the, two, two, two ways to get through this. Um, the companies, the core issue we have is a lot of companies have raised capital at enormous valuations in the last couple of years. Either you can manage to, really cut expenses and not having to, you raise money right now, it's going to be incredibly punitive compared to your last round of financing. So either you figure out how to manage your expenses and yet manage to sustain growth, that's going to be the biggest challenge, right? You used to be growing at 2X or 3X, but you were you're still your S&M spend was still outsized compared to your what, what you grew, but can you still cut your expenses significantly, but yet manage to grow modestly here and survive through what will be a challenging financing environment is challenge number one. It's not really challenging financing environment, right? You have a certain price you're trying to get to and people don't want to take down rounds yet, right? Or you don't want to have a structured financing on top of you, et cetera. So can you run this long enough to at least get to a modest financing, which is not too punitive is challenge number one um, and still manage growth in the process. Or number two, if that is not possible, you know, for the sake of the survival of the business, you just have to go take a, a, you know, some challenging round so that you can live to fight another day is, is the pragmatic approach in these things. And that used to happen a lot of those days. You know, there used to be a term in those days called a pancake round. You might remember that, which is all of new money coming in and some notes that convert will own 80% of the business and the rest of, the rest of everything else squeezes into a 20% part. Yeah. Right. Of course, you know, we are nowhere near such situations here. But, uh, you know, that's what one needed to do at the time so that you can figure out ways to get companies to survive and and live to fight another day is what would happen in those times. Yeah. Um, you know, and, and so 
that was very dramatic because we had even more of a delta between um, companies' progress and the valuations they commanded. You had pre-product companies which would raise money at a billion plus. You had uh, you know companies which pre-revenue companies with eyeballs, etc., that raised money at a billion dollars plus. The gap to grow into anything remotely like that was too much. Yeah, right? I think I about those things and move on. For for people who didn't live through it, and there's a lot of allocators that are you know big VCs even here in Austin that w- didn't witness this stuff. I think that the it was a very severe down round drop that that is not going to happen in any you know similar levels to what we saw. But that's that's because companies were IPOing. It was like a crypto grift. Companies were IPOing based on eyeballs, is what we used to call traffic, without having a business model in place. That's right. Like it, like PR was more more important than revenue. Being sure. on the cover of Wired yeah. magazine, so if so, you could justify a billion dollar revenue, a billion dollar pre money valuation for a company that is going to IPO in ninety days, and it was driving these mad, you know, returns. And all of a sudden, New York was in the game. But it, when when the IPO market closed, and people said, "I want you know some first principles, like something that would work in a discounted cash flow." Wharton classroom, you know, that uh, the valuation was all of a sudden like, how much are you raising? How much do you need? Five, double that, that's your pre-money. So they all of a sudden had a 10 million pre um, having been like 500, 700, 800. That's right. That's you know, right. So, so that, that was just severe. I don't think, yeah. we're not we're not quite facing the disappearance of the exit market. We are not anything close to that kind of stuff, but the challenge will still remain is if private companies got financed at 50 times, 100 times, 200 times of revenues last year. And sitting on decent cash, how do you grow into something that resembles, you know, great valuations or, or when you, when you, for your next round of financing? That's going to be the core issue here. Yeah. How do you go deal with a reckoning of what was a really high-priced round last time? It's a viable business. It's got, you know, $10 million revenue business, but got raised money at a billion dollar valuations. Or, you know, you have that dynamic. How do you then grow into something? Maybe it's doubling again this year. Public markets are at seven to eight times, right? Revenues, uh, right? How do you then grow into something that looks more, um, that, that's palatable for that business is the core issue. Right? Yeah, I, it, the, the, the so we've got over 50 companies alive in our portfolio and a bunch of them raised 100 million plus rounds in the summer and spring of 2021. Right. And we invested these companies with entry points at $8 million, 10, 12, 16, at the most 30. And these companies are valued at, you know, two and a half billion, one billion, 750, 500 type valuations. And usually me and the CEO agree we're going to raise a smaller round, then this is the plan, and we can get to profitability and we have an exit. Or Let's just take what we raised and get to profitability. And that's like problem solved for most of them. That's right. It's often the VCs that were in that bubble round that seem to have some LP they need to answer to. I can answer to my LP saying, yeah, we got it at eight and they raised money to a 2 billion valuation. We're looking fine. And I'm willing to cut that in half if I have to. It's those last entry point growth stage VCs that are a bit of the problem for us of talking some sense into them and they don't seem to know how to run a company. 
yeah, you know, it'll all have to get resolved here, right, in the next uh, the next year, year, year and a half as what does growth look like in steady state? What does steady state multiples look like? Things will not look like 100x, 200x here, Andrew. You know, I, I look for that to require, you know, Fed rate to be at 0%, like what it's been forever, right? Yeah. We just, we, if, even if you get to, you know, whatever it's going to be, 3%, 5%, 4, 4% Fed long-term rates here, things will look like what 2016, 2017 probably looked like here in steady state. Okay. Right, which, which, which looks like, you know, businesses need to be great SaaS business will be 10 to 12 times, you know, revenue. So are you talking uh, what, what an M&A acquisition would look like? So a good SaaS business uh, would be sold for 10x revenue? To yeah, big... that's right. You know, 10x, maybe 12x, right? Or of course, they're growing, doubling it over a year. You will get some credit for next 12-month revenues, right, in terms of what that price is. It'll be something in the 10 to 13, 10x revenues. That's going to be the core issue. How do you grow these things into? I'm sure you can get priced on next 12 month revenues. Maybe you can get 10 times NTM, it's definitely possible. How does that fit with the envelope of what you priced last time? And yeah. how does it get reconciled with what happens with respect to? Um, uh, with respect to you know a next round of financing that needs to happen for this business, yeah. that that's going to be the fundamental rub here for these companies. Either yeah. you you wait a long time and you manage to keep growing, and maybe markets you ride one more wave that perhaps comes, who knows? Or you ride this into profitability and good things somehow happen because you can always say I don't need to sell the business, but how yeah. do you know, how do you how do you prevent from growing being a 20-30% grower when you are a 100% grower because you are not investing enough in SSLs and marketing? Those, that's going to be the fundamental tension here of these companies as they think through what to do next. And um, what's your, you know, unfortunately we have to be macro guys as well as private markets, early stage investors, but what's your sense of where the market is? Um, are we are we going down? Are we at a bottom? Are we already on an upswing? And even like I told you before we started recording here, I had dinner with a wealth manager and an investment banker you know, both who moved here from one from Dallas, one from Seattle. So like property prices just from these guys is going up. Uh, but do, do you think property prices are going up or down in Austin? And then let's talk about what it means for timing on exits with your portfolio. I think property prices, at least in Austin, will decline at least in 23 is a sense. You know, they were phenomenal. It was insane. We had companies with, we had, we had homes with, 70 offers, right? 80 offers and stuff like that situations. Yeah, you see a lot so, of cars parked in front of a house on a Saturday. Right, look at, and look, remember, we have a phenomenal prop tech portfolio, right? We've got uh, eight amazing prop tech companies. But, so and we, we're in together with Nada. We've showed it to you and I was super happy Nada. to exactly. finally do a deal with really you guys, appreciate it, yeah. exactly, right? And that, so that was, so we've done some lot of exotic, specialty finance meets uh, real estate kind of companies, you know, from Opsity, Ojo, Homeward, Backflip, Nada are all, you know, a lot of amazing companies there. So we track lots of market trends as a part of that. And so um, we think, you know, Austin prices have to come down uh, compared to where they used to be. And maybe we'll, but, but you know, I'm, I'm still incredibly, incredibly bullish about the future of Austin in terms of all the activity underway. Um, you know, macro stuff, it, it's, it's, a, it's a, this week feels strange, this week, last week, from a macro perspective on one side, you felt gloomier, right? But suddenly markets, the way markets have behaved the last week to this week feels like 
geez, this whole inflation thing and rates is all in the rear view, rear view mirror, mirror. It's all well characterized for us to grow again, sort of a sentiment. So I'm not even sure what exactly is going on, you know, in one no. sense, because our, our, our is, is, is uh, the, the, the remarks of the Fed chair, are they just, you know, is he really that confident that uh, uh, inflation is starting to going to decline? Is it uh, not obvious? But nevertheless, I don't think world will get back to the 50x, 100x kind of revenue run rate kind of exits and multiples. We will just have to be more pragmatic and build these things to be, you know, how do you build good businesses, get them to be 10 to 15 times at best kind of exit, exit outcomes is probably what one has to very much think about. And in the best case, lots of businesses transacting in the six to 10 times revenues if they're a much more modest growing businesses. So some, those would be the calculations that people have to make here as to what's possible. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, the, the smartest thing to say, I think I heard Mark Andreessen say, no human can calculate this complicated, there's too many moving parts for anyone to predict the macroeconomic environment which translates to is now the time to sell this portfolio company or should we wait? And so it means you need to be prepared for both scenarios. Be prepared for, we got to walk and march through a desert with no water and That's get right. through that. And then be prepared for entertaining. You know, if somebody can buy us for 500 million and turn that into a multi-billion reoccurring business unit, fantastic, you know? So be prepared, be prepared for both, you know, and get hands-on. So. Let's switch gears and talk about um, the live oak Krishna model that you're implementing now. Um, there, I mean, there's a lot of VCs that have popped up that just spray and pray, attempting to, you know, replicate Ron Conway and the CEOs meet him three times and he still doesn't know their name or face. You guys yeah. are the opposite. You guys, are, I think of you as OG. I mean, I remember introducing you to John at, at NADA and you were put it this way, you had a full understanding of that business by the time you wired your money <laughs> compared yeah, to some sense. people. So maybe explain what your your basic framework is, what stage you're investing. Is it 100% Texas only? Just so if nothing yeah. else, our listeners know when to approach you with a Pretty deal. Much so I, I think you can synthesize our investing approach to being we are 100% all in on Texas, early stage, um, tech tech enabled services sort of a model. And we are complete purists to that strategy. I think we must have invested in 55 to 60 companies since inception. Um, fund one um, was a uh, close end of 2012. We just went past our 10 years from the first close of fund one. Um, and today we're investing about $210 million fund. Uh, fund three, we have close to about half a billion dollars under management. But every single company has got founders and companies based in Texas. In every single company, we ideally look to lead or co-lead that investment. We almost always take board seats in them. In pretty much every instance, we are act as the lead director, most active board member through the life cycle of the business. Um, so that's the model that we have practiced. Uh, you know, stage from what stage? They, they all look like seed, Series A at the point of entry in the business, but we always reserve enough to invest across the whole life cycle of the business. I mean, I take take an example. Let me give you a couple of examples. Disco was a great company which we was formed end of 2013. And you're when, chairman at Disco, aren't you? I'm. That's right. I'm chairman of the board at Disco right now. So company was formed end of 2013. Just us wrote the two million dollar check. 
nobody else and the, in the syndicate even the, the the cap table had us and the founder that's it not even hundred thousand dollars from anybody and the company is formed you know fast forward we take it public in uh 21 bessemer georgian um you know stevens group all came in along the along for the ride uh, led multiple rounds of financing took it public in 21 uh, july organically grown to almost 150 million dollars in revenues and so i was honored when the founder turned to me when we went public and said would i be chairman of the board when we went public again it's a it it it, it's, it symbolizes our active collaboration effort i still speak to that kiwi the founder and ceo sometimes daily you know i might we speak numerous times in a in a day sometimes kind of a situation because we're still pretty actively involved in the business we still have a big position of the business um went from you know that to uh, at the day of ipo to the two billion dollar market cap business of course things have corrected a bit uh, right now if it's a great company great business right and so that's an example of our style of investing we invest in every single round of the company all the way through being being a public company, staying on the board and continue to be very active through the life cycle of this business. Through, through today, even being a post-IPO stage company of the business. What, was the, time delay between, what was the time delay between entry point to the listing? And, um, and, and in the real the, world, there's a lockup as December, well. December 2013 was when the company was formed and we invested. Uh, company went public July of 21 is when it went public. Okay, so that, what that's is that? a that's a fair decent sprint. Sometimes it's a longer road. No, no, no. That. That's a that, that's, that's amazing. Seven and a half years that's, from that's, uh, yeah. formation to going public was simply remarkable for that business, uh, and all organic too. No roll ups at the time of uh, we went public. Business is a hundred million dollar business, uh, right? So it's an amazing story of uh, zero to hundred in the time frame. And that's also good to hear. I remember um, when the dot com crash happened. Uh, our lead underwriter for our IPO said, "These are the it was Morgan Stanley in New York, and they said, here's the new rule book, Andrew, rule book, six consecutive quarters of profitability. And it was like, oh my God, what the hell is that? Because right. I can run a profitable business, but it's the VCs making me into a loss making right. business, right. um, looking for a fast path to the IPO. So it was six consecutive quarters of profitability, and it was a minimum top line of 225. Random numbers, but... That's what Morgan Stanley said to us, like oh. after the pin of the Morgan's that the DOJ was going to break up the monopoly of Microsoft. That was the pin that burst the bubble, you know, and, and those were the new rules. Now I remember saying like, geez, Pandora is losing a lot of money. And John Kraft managed to get that thing listed it, 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 when we we're recovering. So it's interesting to see a hundred million top line, two billion market cap. What was the well, lockup? I think, I think what was the lockup for founders? What was the lockup for investors? Do you remember? It's a standard six-month lockup there, right? Okay. So on. Um, but the company also managed to do a secondary following that, which was uh, which is which is good for the company overall. But uh, I think the people start really focused on growth rates, which has shifted more to what does rule of forty look like? Rule of forty is defined as growth rate, you know, plus uh, loss uh, percentage percentage of revenues, and so. You know, uh, businesses which are greater than 40 in a rule of 40, which is growth rate plus the profitability metric, is an important metric. So, uh, all on all those scores, Disco was um, considered pretty high. But 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 Disco was a small revenue business at the time of IPO. I mean, businesses had been staying 
private for 13, 14, 15 years, yeah. not gone public. Yeah. Look at Stripe is not public yet, right? And so that's a fairly common phenomenon these days, I feel, in terms of uh, companies are waiting a while to go public. And uh, those that miss the window, uh, who knows, they might have to wait for some time before they can go public again here. Yeah, and there's a big old secondary market that's evolved ever since Sarbanes-Oxley, you know, the secondary market's been evolving more right. and more and more and culturally right. more accepted. I and mean, even New York was resisting it when California was leading the way. And, you know, there there is liquidity um, for people that need it. I think in those stay private forever companies. That's right. So to come back to the Livebook story, the emphasis, the, the, the story, the, the synthesis again is focus on the local market, be early, but the whole playbook, the investing playbook is all about how do we support our founders to become category leaders in whatever they do in this market, right? And so go from super early to building hundred million dollar plus businesses and how do we enable them, support them on the whole life cycle, be the active lead board member, support supporting member through the life cycle of the business. That's yep. the playbook for us. And that's now that's worked numerous number of times. Homeward, one employee, when we backed up the $2 million check, again, sole investor there. Uh, we raised a $150 million round with uh, Norwestern Blackstone co-leading it um, last time. And, uh, you know, meaningful upper double-digit business, you know, and then in, in, in four years' time. So those are some of the stories here that would indicate that this playbook is kind of sort of working well as we yeah. as what we've embraced the last 10 years. And Krishna, we're going to have to close soon, but I'm curious to know, within Texas, what's the uh, distribution of Austin, Dallas, Houston, San Antonio? Where, where, How would you break it down statistically? I mean, not exactly numbers, but roughly. Well, we, we, we would say clearly Austin dominates. Austin's probably, from our company's perspective, 75 to 80% of the portfolio is in Austin. Okay. I would say 75%, followed by Dallas. We've, we've, been, we've made a lot of money in Dallas in the Austin Ventures days. We probably have uh, maybe five to 10 companies in Dallas. There's some great companies that are growing nicely in Dallas, including the one we have co-invested in, Nada, Backflip. Yeah, Nada's doing great. Called, there's a company called Take Command Health. There's a company called Backflip. Uh, there's uh, one more called Amplify. We got a lot of good companies in Dallas. Um, and that's that's uh, will be material for us. And we are continuing to spend a lot more time in Dallas. Um, Houston is number three and San Antonio is number four. You know, Houston... Okay. Is feels like on the cusp of something good, but we've not had a real velocity of great companies yet coming out of it. Of course, Disco came out of Houston and then moved to Austin, but we've not had been able to replicate that motion here quite consistently yet yeah. uh, in some significant fashion. Yeah, well, there's so many VCs here now, just people I know from Silicon Valley in New York, not to mention all these new ones and people coming here. So this is a rapidly boom town, up and changing thing. So in closing, Krishna, I know that in December, I believe you hiked up uh, Kilimanjaro, right? And you've got a blog post on LinkedIn that's blowing up. Maybe, I think it was 10 lessons learned from, you know, climbing Kilimanjaro. Can you talk yeah, to us a little right. bit about that? Yeah, exactly. So this came out of, uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty hard climb. It was eight days. The whole, You know, when I was, uh, I just turned 50 last year. When I turned 45, I told the family, let's all climb Kilimanjaro when I turned 50. Oh, wow. And shockingly enough, uh, my kids... 22 and 20 and 13 all wanted to still keep doing it. And so we all successfully summited it together and my wife um, on Christmas Eve last year. So it's, it's, a, it's a tough climb. You know, it's a peak is summit is 19,341 feet. And uh, it's eight, eight days, uh, about uh, 60 miles. 
50 hours, uh, average elevation between 13 and 14,000 feet the whole time. Um, and, uh, you know, look, as a family, we've never camped before. Our first ever camping was on the mountain. Oh so goodness. we are not like your mountaineering, hiking family. And so it was simply, the, the blog talks about, as I was walking through these long days, you know, you got you to focus on things. And I was thinking about what's common to this, this, this arduous task and, uh, and entrepreneurship. And I started to make a list. And when I came back on the flight back, I just wrote out my blog, it came out of that. And it's everything from, you know, a set up, uh, set up, a, set up a goal, not a crazy goal. People say, you gotta have a BHAG, you know, big, hairy, audacious goal. I said, no, have a, I'm glad we didn't say Everest was our goal. It'd been too nuts, we wouldn't have prevailed. Um, set up a modest goal, which was climbing Kili, right? One of the seven peaks um, and so on. Um, Number two, you know, uh, we uh, uh, partnered with uh, probably the best uh, uh, folk, best expert on Kilimanjaro, somebody who summited 365 times before that, world's number one person in summiting. So we just, I, I that the whole notion of this person having the focus to only focus on Kili was a big connection. It reminds me of the live oak mentality of focus and uh, a lot of people in the comments and LinkedIn say they love this quote. I said, I said, focus uh, begets uh, specialization, specialization begets exceptionalism. Um, and uh, he was that, and I thought that struck a real chord with me on, uh, on, uh, on what that felt like in terms of our own live work ethos of investing. So maybe like uh, recruit the best team, partner with the best VCs, Exactly. Gonna... And partner with VCs who are focused on what they do. You know, again, you talked about don't do these spray and pray guys who are maybe doing whatever stuff, right? Find people who think who are the best at the specific thing you're doing. And of course, the plug for us is that, look, you know, I think we do a better job, maybe the best job of early stage companies this market in terms of how we surround them with support and help. And we are friend, philosopher, guide, mentor, whatever it is through their whole life cycle of the journey. And, uh, we are that sort of a highly focused, highly specialized, and therefore exceptional partner for local entrepreneurs, right? And that's the core that struck with me here. Um, and, uh, you know, uh, little, little things like, we had, um, we had like these amazing porters who took care of us along the way, doing lots of little things from bringing us hot water for our feet to, there was a toilet engineer who'd carry toilets up from campsite to campsite. So it's, it's important to think back and reflect and say, thank you to all the people, who, the entire supporting cast. We put entrepreneurs in the spotlight, rightfully so, but we don't think about the, you know, we all got to sit back and think about all these amazing people who are so helpful, who are supportive along the journey here is important. Um, in, you know, it's a long, arduous journey, but um, another lesson was we have to celebrate the little victories along the way, not just wait for celebrating the big, 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 big epic climb here. Um, you know, that's really important. And uh, that would always get us going. You know, when you got to the top of a little ridge, end of the day, all we keep epic celebrations of one more amazing thing that could be done here. Um, another lesson I talk about is the importance of iterating, tweaking, improving step-by-step, step, literally, you know, what do you do each day? How do you make a step happen? How do you breathe a little better are all little things that you optimize, learn, improve, and being in a startup is a lot like that, right? How do you, so much monotony, but how do you do each day 
better the previous day sort of a thing is really, really important. Um, and and last two most important lessons are, look, there's nothing that we could have done that would have prepared us more. I mean, maybe you could have gone to Colorado and spent a month and so on. But ultimately for us, what mattered the most was just grit and endurance. Mm -hmm. We simply had to tough it out. We simply knew we had to prevail and we simply had to deal with altitude sickness. We had to deal with all the challenges that came with it. We just had to say, we're gonna do this. And uh, we, you know, it became a test as a family for us from our 13 year old to, you know, out of shape mountaineers like me, we just got to persevere and go make it happen. So there is simply no substitute for grit and endurance. All the curveballs that get thrown along the way in entrepreneurship is the same. You just got to sit down and prevail is what needs to happen. And um, last, last point is I say this to a lot of amazing people who who admit, you know, senior execs in our startups, should they go be an entrepreneur? And I say, look, you know, I think of this as, should I be a mountaineer, right? And we did it. Um, so I said, anybody could be a mountaineer. Well, not everybody, but most people can be mountaineers with this mindset. And so I say, anybody can be an entrepreneur. Right? Not, of course, not everybody, but a lot of people can be who have the innate abilities they can be. Um, they just got to take the first step. We, we took the first step. Yeah. at the first gate and then we step put one step in front of the other and made it happen so as long as you're prepared to take the first step forward and i finished by saying nothing ventured nothing gained right in walking yeah. ron milton and paradise lost right it's 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 just got to go do it and uh um and uh be deliberate be thoughtful be gritty and good things happen and come out of that well, it sounds like Winston Churchill taking that first step or, you know, that, that that's amazing. Or, you know, Martin Luther King uh, Jr. leap, take that step out there. Well, sounds like you'll never forget that 50th birthday. It's also, it's one thing to uh, climb Kilimanjaro yourself, but it's another thing to get the whole family. I mean, that, that, that sounds like a startup team pick. endeavor to get the whole family up there. Well, Krishna, wonderful stuff. Um, uh, I look forward to co-investing with you guys more Absolutely. and uh, super excited to see this next chapter in the development of the Austin, Texas and greater Texas uh, startup community. So see you soon, my friend. Likewise, Andrew. Enjoyed it. Thank you. Okay. Bye for now. Well, that was certainly interesting. It's Mark Dikarjani with Pacific Western Bank back here. Again, really excited to be part of the podcast with 7BC and Andrew. And we're excited just to support the ecosystem and help you get to whatever your next step is in your business journey. Thank you very much.